One of the most gratifying elements of my work is the emails I receive from readers of my blog, listeners to this podcast, and now those of you who've read my new book. What I find especially gratifying is the trust people place in my ability to answer their questions. But other things come to mind besides the word gratifying. Inspiring is probably the better word. There's so many of you out there that are trying to do so much with so little. A paid staffer trying to do it all, a founder trying to get the board to share the ownership of the organization and grow its resources, a small organization really dependent on that one grant that is at serious risk. So I'm now getting dozens of questions from these what I call small but mighty nonprofits who want to be mighty but feel just, well, (laughs) small. I'm having trouble getting to all the emails. And so today, as a Jeopardy guest might say, I'll take small nonprofit potpourri for 400, Alex. And please stay with me. I've been grappling with how to be of help to some of these smaller nonprofits And I've developed a free online workshop I'm going to tell you about during our time together today. My senior associate, Maria Chaveco, will join me. She was in your shoes as an executive director with a big vision, a deep passion, and short on resources. She also reads your emails along with me. So today we'll tag team our way through common questions, providing you with actionable advice, a kick in the pants when you need it, and a shot in the arm, which you can always use. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. So, today, what we're going to do is pretty straightforward. We're going to try to tackle as many questions from readers as we can in our half hour time together. And so I've asked Maria Trevecco, my senior associate, who also reads these emails along with me, if she would take the helm and um, be the questionnaire, the host, if you will. And um, I'm going to take a crack at some of the answers. And hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, this will be of some help. And I'm going to guess you may recognize some of your own situations in the questions that are posed. So Maria... I'm going to follow your lead, and I'm ready when you are. Joan, this is very exciting. I get to be the hostess with the mostess for the day a little bit. (laughs) I'm very excited about that. Don't Uh, get too excited. Yeah. So, um, like Joan said, we get a lot of questions, and um, we tried to come up with some that were more within the theme, but really, it's small nonprofits. That's, that's really the umbrella that, all, that they all fit under. Um, we are not going to be using people's names. We are going to make sure that uh, if anything was too specific, that would give away um, the confidentiality that folks placed in us in sending us these questions, that we would edit some of that out. So um, here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. Dear Joan, I have, fo- I have been following your podcast for a while, and I was wondering if there's any place on your website or blog where you address who should be doing which tasks at a small nonprofit. I'm part of a small nonprofit, two and a half employees, and have been involved almost since it began. The founder is our ED. 
I came on board within the first year of the organization starting. As I listen to your podcast, it seems like most of the work that I do is actually ED work. Our nonprofit is only about five years old, so I feel like a lot of this stuff we're making up as we go. Can you help me? I'm sorry, can you help me find a roadmap to learn from what others have done and make sure the work is distributed equally? I don't. Um, I don't think that this is uncommon, especially with an organization that's relatively new and a founder founder as your executive director. Part of that is because a founder generally in the first several years is very externally focused. They're essentially the champion of the organization, the public voice and the public face. They're out presumably raising the funds that are necessary. So it can sometimes feel like the person on the inside actually um, is doing more sort of ED-like work um, running the organization, managing the finances, uh, looking at the website. And so in in and of itself, what you describe about the fact that you feel like you're doing ED work is not, in my mind, not totally off the mark. Um, unless your founder isn't doing the things I've just described, in which case you probably have a problem. The, um, the thing about um, having just two and a half people is it's a little bit hard to have that kind of clarity of role that you have if you have 15 or 20 people. And you have to be quite nimble about who's doing what, right? Who's most overloaded? How can I pitch in? What, what actually, to me, is key in this small nonprofit, the best roadmap, is really strong communication and making sure that those three people are, are totally team players and that you recognize that it is that the, the, that the whole of the three of you is greater than each individual part. Um, and I think that's important. And then the last thing that I'll say is in an organization that's small, your board should be playing a very active role either uh, working, like running an event or chairing fundraising, um, uh, helping with marketing, maybe doing uh, website work, that sort of thing. Um, But at this stage in the evolution of an organization, you're definitely in working board mode. And um, so do make sure that's another thing I would actually try as much as I could to be a thought partner with the founder to get the board to be a full participant as well. All right, so the next question is, hi Joan, I have recently been hired as an administrator for a very small nonprofit. I find myself in the middle of conflicting perspectives on how to manage our various scenarios. Two board members want to, in air quotes, run things as a business, and the other member wants to in air quotes, run it as a nonprofit. I plan to sit down with them and hash out exactly what each thinks that means, but I thought I would get your wisdom first. Should nonprofits be run as businesses or should they be run as nonprofits? And what the heck is even the difference between those concepts? How can I create a conglomerate game plan and a vision for our group? For some background, the tension seems to be coming from expenses. No surprise there. 
For instance, <laughs> the business people are happy to spend $8 on a good quality t-shirt for an event, while the other person wants to spend $5 on a lower quality t-shirt so the difference can be saved for the cause. On the business and uh, or the business people are okay with trying $300 on Facebook ads even if they might not pan out, while the other person is cringing at the thought of throwing away $300 on something that is unknown. So is it a business or is it a nonprofit? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes, <question>? yes. <laughs> All I'm, right. Do you have any other questions for me today, Maria? Because I think our work is done here. No. You know, um, uh, seriously, I always, I always think of this because uh, like you, I was in a for-profit business and then went to a nonprofit. And I always have seen the benefit of instituting thinking from both sides, right? There are benefits yeah. on, bo- on both ends. A lot of businesses should certainly keep records like a nonprofit. And a lot of nonprofits should have a little more thinking like a business. So this is, this is not uncommon. No, it's not. And I, what's important is that in the, in, in the scenario that, that you described, Maria, is there's an important role for the board chair to be playing mm-hmm. in melding those points of view together so that they are not at odds with one another. Like that's the role of a board chair is to say, Bob, you're totally right. Certain aspects of this organization need to be run like a business. We have to, we, you know, <clears throat> donors give money and they expect a return on their investment in addition to make it feeling good about committing dollars to a cause that they really care about, right? So on one side, yes, we do have to think like a business, but on the other hand, you know, we, there's a there's a passion and a mission focus to what we do that makes us different that makes us we're going to make different kinds of decisions that are in the interest of the communities we serve we might go above and beyond we might do something different but we're not going to do that because the numbers are going to tell us so there we're going to do so because our heart tells us so or that the mission drives us there. And what I hear in the conflict is that it's a conflict and it shouldn't be seen as one. And you need to look to the leadership of your organization, either at the board level or the staff level or both, to validate both points of view and recognize that there is um, important, that each sector brings something important and actually melding them together can is part of what will make a nonprofit really thrive. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's all I can say. Preach. Okay. So the next one is a little bit of a doozy. Um, it starts with dear Joan, we have an executive director. So far so good. Dear Joan. I got that. <laughs> yeah. Dear Joan, we have an executive director who was guided, trained, conditioned, etc., by the former ED who held the position okay. for 28 years. Okay. During the former ED's 28 years, he built boards to be rubber stamps. He ran the meetings. He decided the agenda. He decided what the board needed to hear and not hear. 
He did not do annual plans. He referred to any strategic plans as blue sky thinking. Unfortunately, he passed on all these characteristics to the new ED. I'm writing because I see both sides of the board scenario playing out through conversations and observations with the board chair and the ED. Board chair trying to find and assert her role, an ED working to keep all the reins in his hand, and oversight out of the picture. Should the ED be running the meetings, setting the agenda? I mean, this is obviously a staff member that is neither the ED nor the board chair. Well, it, it, it seems like this was an internal candidate who got the job, that they didn't, that either they didn't do a search or they... They did not or, do a search. They did not do a search. They, they made an internal hire. Yeah. So what's interesting about this scenario is um, typically boards that feel like rubber stamp boards, after 28 years of doing that, they go looking for something very, very different. And if I had to predict, I would predict that at some point in the not too distant future, this board is going to get really tired. They're going to realize, oh, we had the opportunity to make a change and partner with our new executive director. And we took the path of least resistance and made an internal hire. So I predict that something's going to change there in terms of the board starting to assert its own partnership um, in the organization. The second thing is the best way, and I say this quite a lot, the best way to get a board to behave differently is to what I call tip it, like Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, is to begin to introduce new board members who know what really solid boards look like and what really solid board members' roles and responsibilities are. And so if I were going to put any effort in any one place, I would be suggesting as many great board members to join that board as possible to start to get that board thinking differently about its role. Because the bottom line is that that board by just simply following the lead of an executive director, is not doing its job. It's actually being irresponsible. It means it's not asking good questions. It probably rubber stamps the audit. I'm sure it rubber stamps the budget. What about annual goals? This isn't the kind of this is the kind of board that is managed by the executive director. So we could argue that maybe that executive director, if they've had an annual performance review, it's been a long time since, and it probably wasn't very comprehensive, thorough, or productive. So you have a board problem here. You don't have an executive director problem. And so the way to go at this is to try to add new board members and to use your leverage and influence, if you can, to try to change... Um, to try to change the nature of that board so that it begins to take ownership of its role because rubber stamp boards can be an accident waiting to happen. And without even trying, the next question is going to be from the board side. (laughs) Hello, Joan. Not a dear Joan, but a hello, Joan. Hello, board, board member. 
This is my first time as a board member and I don't fully understand my role. Our meetings are run by the executive director. <laughs> he was given the job and has no prior experience running a nonprofit. She controls everything and if anyone doesn't see things her way, she gets snarky. Example, I asked why I was reading on Facebook about an upcoming fundraiser. I felt the board should have known and given some input. Her response, well, I'm sorry, but I have to raise money. And if someone is upset, that's just too bad. Other board members are silent and everyone seems intimidated by her. The clients have come to me complaining that she talks down to them. I'm beginning to see this all fall apart and it's only my first year of service. I've already bowed out of one project because she made all the decisions and dismissed our concerns and ideas after telling us we were in charge of the project. And if we needed her for anything, we could come to her. She wants complete control over everything and the tension is thick around here. I'm sorry this is so long. I'm frustrated. My first piece of advice is please do not quit this board. Yep. Right. Don't quit. The fact that you see it the fact that you have, frankly, the fact that you've raised your hand to actually articulate the problem means that you are critical to the solution. Correct. That is a good board member. So here's the thing. The most important thing that this, that this board member said in her email or his email is that the clients have come to complain. Remember the last question we were talking about, is it a business or it is it, or is it a, you know, or is it a nonprofit with a mission? Right. Well, here's a place where you actually absolutely cannot sit idly by. Why did you join this board to begin with? Why did all of you join this board to begin with? Right. You joined because you cared about those clients and their needs, and you felt like you could add value to the organization's ability to meet those needs or to advocate for those communities. So here's what I would do. First of all, I, I cannot believe that there isn't another kindred spirit like you on that board. Go find that person. Yep. Go find a small cadre of people and share the information you have about the clients. Start there because it's not, let's not make it, a, if you make it about the ED, it becomes a harder sell. Make it about the client, right? So try to get two or three board members that are kindred spirits, if they haven't heard this story themselves, tell it to them. And then go to the board chair and ask the board chair to go into executive session without the executive director. Yes, it will absolutely send the executive director into outer space, she'll be so angry. But you as a board have a responsibility to the clients you serve. And if those clients are legitimate voices, the ones you've heard are legitimate voices for the people you serve, you have an obligation to sit as a board and say, hold on here. This feedback came to us and we have an obligation to do something about that. Then ask the executive director to come in and having strategized without her in the room, then talk about this particular client and have a plan in your head about what it is you would like to see happen. Because if you don't, the executive director you described will run roughshod right over you. Dismiss this particular client for one reason or another, 
and try to get you out of her hair, which is where she wants you to stay. One of the things that happens with EDs like this is they don't see boards as adding any real value, that they are just meddlers, that they're going to ask questions and just be in their way. And why can't they just stay way over there, raise money, and send in checks? And it doesn't work like that. But this particular person doesn't even seem to care about that very much based on your email. Um, it seems to me that this power, this is a command and control executive director, and no board should ever, ever, ever be in a position to be fearful or intimidated by their own executive director. Think about that. Go put your business hat on. Could you imagine being so intimidated by someone who fundamentally works for you that you don't make the right decisions on behalf of your clients? You'd never do that. So find kindred spirits and um, do not sit on this information. It's important. Okay, here we go. Hi, Joan. I'm glad I found your work. I've been recruited as ED for a very small nonprofit. I'm a brand new ED and will be starting in June. I'll be meeting with the outgoing ED as our time will not overlap and she is leaving the state. I was wondering if you had any insight for important questions I should ask the outgoing ED. So you want to sit down with your outgoing ED. And I think you want to ask a couple of questions. I, I, I would want to know about the board that I was inheriting. I might even bring a list of my board members and ask the outgoing ED to give me color commentary on each of them, maybe rating them one, two, or three. Rock star, um, someone will do something if you ask, um, someone you wish would get off of the bus at the next stop so that I have a lay of the land from the outgoing ED about what, what kind of shape my board is in. I want to know about my, about my board share. Who am I inheriting? What's that working relationship been like? And is there a leadership pipeline? Should I know who thinks they're going to be the next chair? Um, I would ask questions. I would ask a question to the outgoing ED for them to describe what they see as honestly the, the biggest opportunities and the um, the things that are really in the way of those opportunities. I mean, clearly, I would ask a, a bunch of questions, but but remember, you're going to get a lot of data. But what you really want from the executive director leaving is some sense of um, of perspective and a lot of information about relationships. So the, so the other thing to think about, how about asking this person for a list of 10 or 15 people you should meet with in the first 30 days at your job? Yep. Right? It might be a community colleague. It might be um, one of your, uh, you know, as someone who gives a little but could be giving a lot more. Maybe it's a foundation that that has really has a good alignment with your mission, but has never given before. Um, maybe it's one of your board members who's very angry and might be leaving the board, and the outgoing ED doesn't think the person should go. Um, it's really, to me, I would say that's the most important um, the most important information you're going to get from an executive director is the relationship and the perspective stuff, not so much the data stuff. Um, 
And then I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I have a blog post that's quite popular called Your First 30 Days as an Executive Director, which you can easily Google or search up on my uh, blog at joangary.com. Um, and you'll know it when you see it because it has an image of a, a cowboy aboard a bucking bronco. <laughs> you know, I would, I would also, um, uh, to feed into your answer about the board is find out what the term, like who's about to get off, who's about to, I mean, if, if you're losing a bunch of your rock stars, right. That are, that are number one rated, you need to know that. And, and the other thing is probably, um, I know for me, I would want to know, um, you know, who are my volunteers? Which one of my staff members on a day that is a little bit rough <laughs> could be the person that I go to to get a little inspired? Yep. Right? Um, you know, those are all kinds of things. And um, because my background is in finance, I would want to have a conversation about finance. A really honest conversation. Yep. These are all, I think, all really, really good ideas. And, um, uh, you know, and all of these questions, Maria, really, um, so it so strikes me, as I said at the very beginning, about the sort of the lack of resources, literally, that smaller nonprofits have. And it's also, I also find it interesting. Sometimes somebody will say to me, I run a very small nonprofit. And I'll say, well, what's your annual budget? And they'll say, well, it's like, you know, it's only like, $700,000. And I'll kind of laugh and say, you know, some people would think that that's a very big nonprofit. I mean, I, yeah. you know, we deal with nonprofits that have $200,000 budgets. And so s small is pretty relative. And, and I also just want to say that um, small does not mean ineffective. It just means small. This is one of the things that I think a lot about. And I mentioned earlier that I'm, I'm doing a free online workshop uh, video workshop starting on May 10th that is easy to watch sort of in an on-demand kind of capacity knowing how busy um, executive directors and board leaders are um, because I'm just really I'm really struck by how hard it is to be a leader at one of these smaller nonprofits and so if you're interested in that free workshop uh, you can register for it at www.nonprofitworkshop.org Maybe one or two more questions for me, Maria. I'm going to take the time that we have left and I'm going to meld um, a couple of questions into sort of one thought because I think they all fall under the same umbrella. So um, you walk into an organization and they are in beginning year two of a three-year grant. It is the only grant that sustains the organization and everyone is working at and like beyond capacity. When is it the right time to hire another body so that people are not working 70-hour weeks or 65-hour weeks and checking everything on the weekend? You know, how do you how do you address that knowing that you have this limited capacity? Do you think the question inherent in the question is to is a when do you bring someone on to fulfill the requirements of that particular grant Correct. or do you think that or not when do i bring on my first additional full-time hire 
I think the genesis of the question, as I look at it, because it's a very long, you know, a lot of background, I think the genesis of the question is hiring somebody for a short amount of time for a project, but they have a thought and a dream that this organization is going to go on further. Right. So past the grant. There's a part of me that says, how did you, how did you do in putting the grant proposal together? And were you realistic about what it was going to take at your end to actually fulfill the requirements of the grant? Um, <clears throat> because typically, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're given a grant um, and you need extra personnel support to deliver on the requirements, you would typically put that into the budget. Correct. Or you would negotiate with the funder to make sure that the scope was manageable enough to be able to do with the existing staff you had. And sometimes going back to the funder, right, and saying, can we do a budget amendment? Can we? You can do that. Yes, you can. People are very afraid to go back to funders. But if you didn't actually do that and you say, you know, I, I got to tell you, we hit a snag. Um, people are often very, very afraid to go to funders and, um, and, and actually raise their hand and say, I, I need help. I mean, it's going to be a relationship. If, if it makes, if it's going to work, it's going to be a relationship. So if you didn't put enough in the budget for that outside resource, there's two ways to go. One is to fess up and go back to the funder and say, you know, here's some proof of concept. We're doing great, great work. And, you know, here's a bite of that. And we a human capacity really, is burnt out. <laughs> right. And we really need X to really, you know, hit this out of the park. <clears throat> the other option is you figure out how much it's going to cost and, and you go to your board and you say, you know what? Our organization's future trajectory is very tied to our success with this grant. We stand the chance of if we get it, you know, if we do well with this grant, these people, this this funder may give us a, a, a much bigger grant to do more work. It'll open a lot more doors. And the truth of the matter is we need an additional resource of X, X number of hours at X dollars. And <clears throat> ask your board to step up. This is, and frankly, these are the kinds of situations in which boards really do want to kind of come to the rescue. Um, so, you know, those are a couple of different ways, but I do think that a lot of times, um, nonprofits are so fearful of funders, particularly foundations, that they want all the work to go to all the money to go to program. And they're afraid to say, I need a part of a person or X number of person hours to deliver it. <laughs> It goes back to, you know, people somehow or another believing that overhead is not instrumental to a thriving nonprofit, which um, do read some Dan Pallotta sometime and you'll hear about that. But it's just cra it's crazy making for me. Um, but I do think that that's at the root of this sounds like the organization did not ask for sufficient funds to fulfill the requirements of the grant and hit a home run. Yeah. And um, we need executive directors and development directors to be more realistic about what they need, to be bolder in their asking, and to recognize that the relationship that they have with the funder needs to be a relationship, an iterative one, 
because the funder wants that project to be a success. And if you believe it's not going to be a success because of something that you need, you need to tell them that because the the funder has skin in the game. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's refreshing. I mean, it's tempting and, and um, it's very scary for, for folks to go back to a funder and say, there's a problem or we need to rethink this with you. But if, if they're involved in the solution with you, it's a win-win. Yeah, I think that's, I do think that that's true. I, I, I think, I believe that more funders wish they were treated like thought partners with their grantees uh, rather than simply um, an ATM that has, you know, delivers a check in exchange for um, a report. They want the work to come to life for themselves as well. And they want, they want to feel like they're, you know, they got to roll up their sleeves at least a little and shape what shape this outcome. And that will give them something to be really proud of. Yep. And they believed in you to begin with. Totally. We're at, we're, I think that most of the listeners are either finished with their elliptical machine or they have reached, (laughs) or they have reached their destination in their car. So I think we're, they're probably out of time. Um, so I think as much as I'm enjoying the questions and I know that you have a much longer list than we got to today, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's and, a great. Uh, it's great though, and I think yeah, that it is great value. I think that um, speaking to the longer list, I think this is why I'm personally so excited about the workshop, and um, and having folks really get to know you the way that I got to know you, right? In in the work that you do, and your heart is really in the success of the small nonprofit. And especially those that don't have um, major, major resources. So I'm, I just want to say thank you. And I'm really excited about the workshop. I hope others are too. What we've, what we've been trying to do since we, since we sort of started this whole thing is really try to hear what um, nonprofit leaders are struggling with and to try to meet those needs in as many different ways as we possibly can, because not everybody's cut of the same cloth. We've got schools, we've got hospitals, we've got, you know, advocacy organizations, you've got community centers. Um, so you've got all this different kinds and varieties of nonprofits and all different sizes and shapes and urban and rural. And um, so we, we've tried to create a palette of work that enables us to reach as many people as we can. And so again, if you're interested in joining us for this um, uh, online video workshop for um, the small and the mighty nonprofits, um, head on over to nonprofitworkshop.org and register. The the, um, workshop will be available beginning May 10th. Um, One of the things I'm hoping, I'm hoping actually that some folks will say, hey, Let's have a, you know, uh, a, let's take those two and a half staff members we have. <laughs> I'm, not sure. I'm always wondering what a half a staff person looks like. Yeah. And, um, and do sort of a. <laughs> yeah, that's a person yeah, that's only go. working 40 and hours then a have, week. You know, have lunch together and, <laughs> and watch one of these videos. And I hope that you'll be able to take away something that will, again, not just make you more effective in your job, but 
um, continue to remind you of the joy and privilege that it, it, it is to um, be a part of nonprofit work. So until next time, uh, thank you for the work that you do, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.